0: you're listening to the history today podcast in this episode we speak to dr amy fuller about day of the dead and the myth of la llorona mexico's wailing woman and andrew loney discusses the obstacles facing historians using the freedom of information act to access government files Firstly, a quick mention that our November issue, which features both Amy and Andrew's articles, is out now. Also inside, a report on a landmark witch trial from 1615, the media's first moral panic, slavery, suffrage and the American Civil War, and the despotic court of Haile Selassie. Now it's over to History Today editor Paul Lay, who spoke recently with Andrew Loney about historians and the FOI Act.
1: Uh, well, we're joined today by Andrew Loney, um, the author of the acclaimed book, Stalin's Englishman, The Lives of Guy Burgess. Um, and Andrew's here today to talk about his frustrations as an intelligence historian with the Freedom of Information Act. Hello, Andrew. Good morning. Um, what's the key problem here? You talk about documents being the lifeblood of a historian Um very much so, and it is for historians throughout all periods. What's the specific problem for intelligence historians?
2: I think the problem for intelligence historians is that we uh, can't interview people because often they can't talk because yeah. of the Official Secrets Act. Uh, often people are dead. Uh, by its very nature, intelligence, you know, this is secret, secret material. And, um, but we have to be able to tell the story at least sometime afterwards. And w- these records are supposed to be deposited in the National Archives. Uh, And they're not being deposited, or at least they are being deposited, but so much of the material has been redacted
1: or, or has been retained that you really can't get any sort of picture at all. And what's the process that an intelligence historian, or indeed any historian wants to do, who wants to get access to these records? Well, the key
2: departments for an intelligence historian are clearly MI5 and MI6, the Cabinet Office and the Foreign Office. MI5 have a programme of releasing documents and sometimes one can request things from them and they may be considered for future releases. Uh, MI6 do not release documents. Cabinet Office and the Foreign Office are required under the Public Record Act to to leave their papers to the National Archives. But they're very selectively doing so. For example, with Guy Burgess, it was very difficult to get a full picture of his career. They wouldn't confirm certain postings. But the process is that you you put a free Information request in, uh, you need to give your name and address and and contact details, and you need to specify the file. Often these files uh, are marked in the National Archives as having been retained by the department. Uh, but quite often, you don't know what's been retained, uh, and so you have to ask a blanket question. May I have the files on so-and-so between a certain date? They will then come back. They're required to give you an answer within 20 days, working days. But again, inevitably, it goes on and on. They get extensions and extensions. So most of the requests i put in have gone on probably for, I would say, 80 days. Mm-hmm. They then can come back with an answer. And if you don't agree with their response, you can put it to an internal review, which, of course, is just conducted by the very people you've just sent the material to, the the ominously called Knowledge Management Department in the Foreign Office. There's something Orwellian about that. Very Orwellian. I think they must be in Room 101. Um, And then uh, if you disagree with the review process, you can take it to the Information Commissioner. But this is a process that can take a year. Uh, And what I've found is they will also limit the number of requests you can make. So I've only actually managed in the course of a year, last year, to put in about a dozen requests, which, you know, when you're writing a book under deadline, is is very difficult.
1: Uh, and how did this, um, w- what was specific about um, Burgess? Because there, there were some files that you, that you could see that, that were open, the stuff um, when he was in the Far East Department during the late 40s, early 1950s, this is around the period of the recognition of Communist China. Yeah. Um, what was not available? What, what were the, 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 the bits that you had to fill in? Well, it's, it's not consistent. You're absolutely right. The Forest Department,
2: we get a pretty good picture of, of, of his role there and the minutes he's, he, he signed off and the advice he gave. What we don't, can't see is anything in the Information Research Department, where he was um, just before the Forest Department, we see nothing from his private the time of the private office with Hector Mcneil and Ernest Bevan uh he clearly had other posts in this period between 1946 and 1950 but we don't know what they were uh the the, the files for the washington embassy seems to have been completely weeded of any reference to him so um you know, it, we know you know people with the same sort of jobs before and after him. You can find out about them, but you can't actually find out about what he was
1: doing there. And you had to reach outside this this, this um, bureaucracy, as so many intelligence historians do. And you had a specific story. Um, about a character called Wilfred Mann, which was particularly r- revealing. It, exactly, it was very
2: exciting. In in the Bodleian, one day I found the unpublished memoir of a man called Sir Patrick Riley, who was the Under Secretary of State responsible for security, uh, and that reveals the existence of this uh, spy in the embassy with Burgess called Wilfred Mann, who dealt with atomic secrets. Uh, and At which period is this? Th- uh, he had actually served with uh, Philby and Maclean in the 19- during the war, and then or rather with McLean during the war, and then with McLe- with Philby and Burgess in the period of around 1950-51. Uh, and uh, his name had come out with uh, in a Climate of Treason by Andrew Boyle, but it had not really been followed up or believed. He denied it. And it was only the confirmation in these private papers. And Riley clearly knew by depositing them in the Bodlin that researchers would find them. It took a bit of time. But they, you know, at least that story came out. My attempts to get some sort of confirmation from any of those government departments was met by a blank refusal. Uh, they claimed not to have any records whatsoever. And yet we, would, we know that as a security official in the embassy, he would have been vetted by MI5 mm. and there would have been a report. So there's this constant, I would say, lying um, that I've come up against time and time again. And I
1: think it's very worrying for, for any historian and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office has particular form on this one, isn't
2: it? I think the two worst offenders uh, <laughs> are the Cabinet Office and the, for, and, the for, and the FCO. And they're the
1: two most valuable in a way.
2: Well, exactly. They're the ones we need. Uh, and it's very you know, we, we need these documents to get the total picture. It, it, when documents are released, they're often redacted, names are redacted of people who've actually written their own memoirs. We know their involvement, there's nothing secret about them. Sometimes we find the name is redacted on one page but not on the other. Uh, we find um, things copied in other departments which actually will, I mean, it's like a, it's a wonderful sort of puzzle that you, you have to sort of follow, treasure trail. But, you know, they have to be more consistent, I think, about if the things are going to be kept secret, then make them secret. Uh, I mean, my other concern is that they're very selective in who they allow to look at the material. So I, for example, even though I've been working on this book for 30 years as a serious writer, wasn't allowed to look at the Burgess material. And yet a a radio... pro And I was told it was physically impossible to actually get hold of it. And yet a radio uh, um, company was able to look at the material for several months, about nine months before the material was released. And I understand that other people have also,
1: including other writers, have been allowed to look at material. And this just doesn't seem to be fair. And do you get the sense that there's any strategy behind this, so far as the government is concerned, or is it bureaucracy for its own sake? I,
2: I think there's, there's a mentality that, that it's easier to say no than to say yes, though ironically they probably spend more time repeatedly saying no than if they'd said yes once. I think uh, that clearly we're we're seeing the Freedom of Information Act is seen to be expensive and uh, embarrassing, and clearly they're trying to put limits on it by charging people to make requests. Um, so I mean clearly there's a problem of resources and they, that needs to be managed but I think it needs to be managed in consultation with, with
1: researchers and not just these blanket rules that they just impose. And is it expensive for historians as well? I mean is it an extensive process? I mean obviously it takes a great deal of time, you, you, you there's talked matter no, the amount of time you had to wait.
2: There's no charge at the moment but I mean this is what they're suggesting that there should be some charges. Um, They will limit the request if they feel it's going to take more than three days' research to get you that information. They won't tell you how why it will take three days. They just sometimes just say it will take three days and you have to believe them. And I think they cost that out at about £200 a day. But I cannot believe with the filing systems they have that it takes three days to
1: locate a file on a particular individual. And it, indeed, in a computerised system as well, I, I still see this, these places as being dusty or places where people are hoisted up to take in documents or anything. Is there any sense in which it's been modernised, in which it's been computerised, in which it's being made more accessible to people?
2: We don't know because none of us... I mean, a few journalists have been to Haslock Park where a lot of these records are kept before they go to the National Archives and indeed where the Special Collections, this archive that goes back to the 19th century, has been kept uh, without people realising it. But, you know, no journalists are allowed to, to look at this and get some sense of what there is. I mean, I would love to see many more documents digitalised to save people, I mean, having to handle the documents and also to have to go in. Um, and, you know, they could charge for downloads. It seemed to be a much more effective way of making the
1: records available to scholars, particularly scholars from abroad. And can a case be made um, to the government and to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the Cabinet Office that actually allowing serious historians access to this would actually be beneficial to them, These, well, the, the government, I mean.
2: Absolutely. I, I mean, I hope that you know historians will, in a sense, rise up and come together and provide some sort of pressure group. There is an advisory group uh, at the National Archives, but it doesn't seem to have any teeth whatsoever. Uh, and officials are able to do what they want. I mean, one of the ironies is that the, the instrument, there was a blanket instrument allowing them to decide what they wanted to be uh, secret and not, was signed by Chris
1: Grayling, who wrote History at Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And there was... And William Hague, uh, when he was at the Foreign Office, did um, make some attempt or at least some lip service towards the idea that historians would have a greater impact on that, a return to the, uh, the old historians. Um, what would you say? Uh Opening things up to historians in the Foreign Office for a while, um, because, well, uh, because I think they neglected that, and it was sensitive that they neglected
2: that. Yeah, and we had the William Waldegrave Initiative, I mean, many years ago. But, uh, you know, I think with the best will in the world, if, the, if the, the officials, in a sense, don't make it possible, it's just not going to happen. Mm. Uh, I mean, ironically, writing my book, I had much more sensitive material from the Russian archives that they'd released than I've had actually from the British archives, that's, that's damning. Um, exactly. <laughs> and it allows, in a sense, the Russians to shape the history because, in a sense, they've, I think, selectively produced documents which, of course,
1: show their agents in a very good light. Uh, and it, and so, but we're only getting half the picture. And it's not as if a character like Guy Burgess, um, you're going to pre- present as some kind of hero. I mean, the evidence there is probably going to be even more damning towards him.
2: Well, exactly. I mean, I think it allows us to tell the story properly, you know, uh, for once. And I think this, by by releasing everything very selectively, uh, rather than just, you know, just doing the whole case in one go, we still probably can't write up the whole story. I mean, there's some more releases due out uh, in October, at the end of October. Um, And, but I'm not convinced that that will be the final set of releases. I mean, there will be more to come, and I think we just as historians have to fight to get as much released as we can.
1: Yeah, well, you've certainly done a good job in telling the life of Guy Burgess, in Stalin's Englishman, uh, which is published by Hodder and Stoughton. So, Andrew, Andrew Loney, thank you very much for that. Thank you thank very you. much.
0: Our thanks there to Andrew. Now it's over to Kate Wiles, contributing editor at History Today, and Amy Fuller, lecturer on the history of the Americas at Nottingham Trent University, who spoke earlier this week about Mexico's Day of the Dead myths, and in particular, that of La Llorona.
3: Okay, so first of all, could you maybe outline the myth of La Llorona as it's most commonly known today? She's usually a ghost, ghostly figure um, who wanders around at night, often by rivers or lakes. Um, she's usually dressed in white um, and sometimes... Sometimes she lures people to their death, um, usually via drowning. If she's if she's known to you as, as the woman who kind of walks around near the water, um, so she's usually um, there's a notion that she's done something ba- very bad in her life, uh, wow. which is why she's she, she's having to having to wander the earth yeah. um, forever, but. Um, usually she's either a menace to to men or to children but there's also a version of her that is a woman who's been jilted and she's been kind of driven mad by this betrayal and she she will kill her children and then herself so it sounds like there's a few links to other narratives and cultures and stories perhaps it's not just a modern mexican myth yeah well it, it, she's claimed as as purely mexican but because the origins of her are so um difficult to trace um it's hard to know what what about the story is purely mexican and what might have been kind of either tainted if you like or 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 taken from other cultures we we can kind of trace the origins even from from pre Pre-conquest times, there are there are several um, goddesses she could be linked to. Um, one of the earliest um, iterations of the myth that we could find um, would be um, in the in the Florentine Codex, um, which is a it's it's kind of an encyclopedia of all aspects of of Aztec life. Um, and it um talks through the various various gods and goddesses and there were a couple of goddesses in there that that we could link to La Llorona. um one which is a uh, c uh which is um she's known as Serpent Skirt in english and she's um she's one of the one of the kind of highest goddesses. Um, She's known to be a bad omen to men. Um, She's thought to bring men misery. Um, And she dresses in white, um, but part of her face, part of her face is is, um, painted black. So we have that kind of, we can trace that part of of the myth from there. um, She's linked to... um, Coatlicue, who is written about in a different codex, um, and she's seen to be the mother of Huitzilopochtli, who's um, the Aztec god um, god of war. Um, she's described as having um, a face covered in filth. Um, she seems to be greatly feared, um, at, but within um, within the codex that she's written about, she's She's described as a woman and not a, not a god a goddess. It's, however, in both of these versions we lose that link to water, but also the link to children as well linked to being kind of menace of children. So you have to find another, another goddess in, in order to to find that part. Um, and that's um, Chow Whitliquay, who's known in English as um, Jade skirt um and she's thought to have kind of drowned people she um is a a water goddess and she seems to be the the sister of Tlaloc, who is the principal rain god um and where it comes to to the link with children is that she um in order to sacrifice to her um and to sacrifice to to the rain gods in general children were were bought from their mothers um and and used for sacrifice and and It was thought that the more they cried, the better the chance of of getting rain so So from there, we get the link to the water and the drowning and the children um, The other kind of really early um, version of La, Llorona, if you like is in the omens of the conquest and um what sh- the sixth omen of ten is is a wa- a woman who wanders the streets at night wailing, um crying out for her children. And this uh figure is is thought to most likely be linked to um the um the serpent skirt. Goddess. Um, and in, in some kind of early codices, uh, Montezuma is, is very worried about this wailing woman and wants to know who she is. Um, but it's later, later kind of scholarship that has really linked that omen to the goddess. Um, within the codices themselves, they don't actually talk about them as being the same people. It's interesting that all these disparate early myths seem to have been defined and then appropriated by a post-conquest culture. How is it shaped as it has come through to the present day then? Um, well, it's very, very difficult to trace, partly because, obviously, it's it's difficult to know, um, to trace the folklore, if you like, but um, we don't really get versions of La Llorona written down until the late, 19, uh, late 19th century, and this kind of coincides with um, a lot of these codices being discovered, um, because um, they, for one reason or another, um, at the time they they don't really they don't really get published. Most of them, um, for example, the Florentine Codex, which is one of the most important uh, documents that we have on on Aztec history. And Aztec way of life and culture um, kind of gets put away um, and, and doesn't see the light of day until, well, it, the late 18th century, and then doesn't get copied until the late 19th century, and then doesn't get published properly until the 20th century. So um, there is a big kind of um, we can kind of link the 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 reclaiming of Mexican history, if you like, to this this myth also kind of becoming uh, more important and being written down in various guises. Uh, It starts off mainly as plays um, and and novels. Um, And what we find is that by the mid, by the early to mid 20th century, it also t- it, it it tends to take on um, a colonial um, aspect. So that's when we start um, having a um, indigenous woman or a mestiza woman, so uh, a woman of mixed heritage, Spanish and indigenous heritage, who meets generally meets a conquistador or or a Spanish man, falls in love with him has children and, is, and then is jilted for, usually for a Spanish woman um, and so that becomes the kind of the most common version of the myth in the mid-20th century and that can be linked quite clearly to, um, to Doña Marina or La Malinche who was um, one of the translators or the principal interpreter. Of Cortez who becomes who has a, has a child with Cortez, and has in recent years become known as the the kind of Mexican Eve, if you like. Um, she's she's held as as the uh, as the one responsible for the uh, downfall of the Aztecs, which is obviously ridiculous because <laughs> she um, she she was. Um, i think she she seems to be of noble birth originally but then sold several times into slavery kind of exchanged and then given to uh Cortes and the conquistadors uh by a tabascan uh chief um so obviously her her power of agency is very limited um but um yeah within popular culture she's known to be the one responsible for for the downfall she does appear in day of the dead celebrations though how is she treated there and how's the myth used it's really within the last 20 years or so um that she's become quite important within um day of the dead celebrations but especially um around mexico city um she um there are various productions um, that are put on. Um, there's one in particular, a really huge one, that happens twice a day for for a period of two weeks over before and after the Day of the Dead celebrations. Um, but also within other regions of Mexico that are um, geared up for tourists during the during the Day of the Dead celebrations, She's, um, there are there are versions of of her story put on um and i think there's there's a couple of reasons for that um one is that um in recent years um halloween has become quite a big threat to the day of the dead um and so there's been and young people uh in mexico obviously they dress up um as ghoulish figures and things like that and um Older, older generations kind of find this, um, uh, have found it a bit sad and um, almost quite uh, a little bit disrespectful because in actual fact, Day of the Dead should be about family, it should be about remembering um, deceased relatives. And and so partly because because of that, but also because there's been a big... Big push in the in the tourist industry in Mexico since the 1970s. I think La Llorona has been claimed as a kind of um, ghost story that is Mexican, if you like, that can be put on at that time of year. Um, but it also really promotes a sense of Mexico as a unique um, culture um, and. Within that, you find that all the versions of La Llorona that have come before have been kind of put together. So you find that the, the story within the plays, um, especially the, the play that's put on um, on the lake of Xochimilco in, in Mexico City, is um, starts with the wailing woman as an omen to the conquest, um, and then you have the story of an innocent indigenous woman who meets and is seduced by a conquistador and he promptly leaves her um for for a spanish woman once la has has outlived her usefulness so he gets information from her um about what the um what the indigenous people are up to if you like so that they can attack and then once she has, once she's no use to him anymore, he, he leaves her for a Spanish lady. And um, she, she then promptly drowns herself in, in the lake and at the same time drowns her unborn child. And then she morphs into this kind of Aztec goddess um, who laments the, the conquest um, and cries out for her lost children who um are kind of twofold as in the child that she's just drowned, but also her her children who will suffer as as part of of the conquest and become part of this raped nation yeah I suppose her amalgamation into general Halloween celebrations uh, slightly diminishes her role as a figurehead for a Mexican identity It's become really commercial um she's kind of on i don't know trying to think that the amount of things that she now advertises and um you know she if you google her image you just come up with very standard uh, almost kind of bride of dracula images if you like and um which which does take away from from the myth itself and and it's it's importance or or Its purported importance. And Amy Fuller, thank you very much.